Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. So my name's Justin, and I have the opportunity to fill in for Trey tonight, which, no pressure, he is here. I thought he wouldn't be here, but he is. Um, so if this thing goes south, we might have to pull an audible and just like cut the lights for a second and do a swap. But, um, and we're just going to dive right in because I think in the history of church, no one's ever complained about a short sermon. So I'm just going to dive right in and we're going to get going. So buckle up. Because um, we're going to be continuing our crawl uh, through the Gospel of Matthew, and we will be focusing on this next section of Matthew chapter 5, which in the English church tradition has always been dubbed the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which you got to admit is a pretty cool name, and it's easy to remember. Uh, but when Matthew actually introduces what Jesus is teaching about, he dubs it and calls it Jesus' teaching and preaching the good news of the kingdom which is a lot more wordy, but does a great job of summarizing what these past, well, what this chapter and the coming chapters will be about. Because what Jesus is doing is he's been going around announcing that the kingdom of God has arrived and that the rule and reign of God is dawning in the world in a new way through Jesus, through what he's doing, through what he's teaching and the miracles that he's performing. And what Jesus has done is he's come to reclaim his world, and he's forming a people around him who are called disciples. Uh, And disciples, what they are, is they're people who recognize, they see Jesus, and they recognize who he is, and they're willing to submit themselves to Christ's rule and reign. And as his followers, this process is very transformative. The theological word for this is sanctification. It's the process of becoming more like Christ every day, dying to yourself and becoming more like him. It's rediscovering our humanity. Um, And within Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is addressing six major issues that were constantly debated amongst the Jewish community. Now, these were by no means the only topics that were debated, but they are extremely important and they were considered hot topics. Um, And what you'll notice is that in each of these scenarios, Jesus is moving towards and exposing amongst his disciples these deep-rooted issues within each one of us which distort and corrode our relationships with other believers and just people in general. Um, You might remember that when Jesus is asked, uh, what is the greatest commandment? How does he answer? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and the other is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Which, growing up, I was always like, well, but which is it, Jesus? Is it loving, your, you know, loving God or loving your neighbor? And the answer is yes. Because you love God by loving people. And all these topics that we've been talking about for these past few weeks sabotage relationships, topics like anger, Uh, and unforgiveness, and divorce, and adultery. And I don't know if you've been anything like me, but I've been walking away each week saying to myself, whoa, like there's so much work that I need to do in my life 
whether it's through the teaching of the Word on Sundays or if you've been reading through the Gospel of Matthew on your own time, you'll quickly find that we are all in the same boat and there's so much growth that needs to happen amongst us. Um, And if that's where you're at, I think you're exactly where you need to be. Because Jesus didn't come to make bad men good. He came to make dead men live. So I'm very excited to continue and take the baton. And we're going to, like Haley read, specifically be in chapter 5, verses 33 through 37, uh, which is a section. I'll just give it to you right now what what tonight's going to be about. Jesus is talking about the way that we bend and distort reality in order to control how people perceive us. That's a mouthful, so I'll say it again slowly. Tonight, what we're going to be focusing on, Jesus is talking about the way that we bend and distort reality in order to control how people perceive us. So to help us out, uh, I'd like to use an illustration uh, and an image, which will be on the screen behind me, uh, which I think will hopefully put into frame what we're talking about tonight. Um, These verses, verses 33 through 37, are kind of like an Olympic swimming pool, which as a side note, is anyone getting excited for the Olympics, which are in a couple weeks? Exactly, America, USA. Um, Which is ironic, because I did not, I was not born in the US, and I did not grow up here, but I'm still a US citizen, so I'll be cheering for, for, for the red, white, and blue. But, and also, what sports do people watch? I, for me, I feel like, Gymnastics is huge, swimming, track and field. Soccer, ping pong, what did you say, Lucas? Sports, just sports in general. Well, I mean, the only time, at least for me, the only time that you watch swimming is at the Olympics. Um, And it turns out, I mean, at first glance, an Olympic pool is pretty straightforward. It's a pool with water in it that you swim back and forth as fast as you can, hopefully faster than the other people in the pool. Um, but it turns out that Olympic swimming pools uh, come with some pretty specific dimensions. They are 50 meters long, they're 25 meters wide, and they're two meters deep. Uh, In terms of volume, to put that into perspective, when full, these pools will hold about 2.5 million liters of water, or about 660,000 gallons, which if you're using a normal garden hose would take about 19 to 20 days, depending on how much water pressure you have. Um, I would not recommend doing that if for some reason you did have an Olympic pool in your backyard. But, uh, but what makes these pools uh, interesting is not just the fact that they have specific dimensions, but there's, there's specific reasons why they're built to be the way that they are. Um, for example, the reason why they're deeper is because when Olympic swimmers are swimming, they are trying to minimize as much resistance as possible. So they're so deep so that the water won't be bouncing off the bottom, slowing them down. Also, you'll notice on the side, they have two lanes that no one's swimming in that are dedicated to reduce the amount of wake in the pool so that way they can ultimately swim faster. Um, And the reason I bring this up is not because I'm a nerd and because I find this stuff interesting, but when you are watching these events, at least for me, now when I watch these swimming events, I have a little bit of a deeper appreciation for what's going on because I understand the intention behind the way they were designed and it just gives you a little bit more buy-in to the subject because you're aware of what's going on. And I think, in a similar way, the verses that we're going to be looking at tonight, at first glance, they seem pretty straightforward. 
especially when you compare them to the topics that are surrounding them, topics like murder and divorce and adultery. To me, when I was, you know, when Trey talked about me teaching on this tonight, I was kind of happy because I'm like, I haven't sworn an oath in who knows how long. Um, and it's a topic that I felt like maybe I'm doing okay with, you know. Um, but the truth is, is I'm setting this all up because after going through this passage, doing more research and reflecting on what Jesus is getting at, the truth is, is that, no, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in this area. And there's a lot of repentance that I had to do preparing for tonight. And my hope is, is that when you leave tonight, you'll also realize we have some work to do as, as believers. So with that said, I actually want to read these verses one more time because they're super short and it'll only take a minute. Um, and if you have your Bibles, this would be a time where I encourage you, open them up. If you have your phone, get there, read along with us, because I think that there's something important about doing that. So I'll give us a second while I get drink water. All right. So verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to, the older, to an older generation, do not break an oath, but fulfill your vow to the Lord. But I say to you, do not take oaths at all, not by heaven, because it is the throne of God, and not by earth, because it is his footstool, and not by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, because you are not able to make one hair white or black. Let your words be yes, yes, or no, no. More than this is from the evil one. Now, there's something that we need to sort of deal with right off the bat. Because when you read verse 33, um, again, you've heard that it was said to the older generation, do not break your oath, but fulfill the vows to the Lord. You might be thinking to yourself, oh, well, tonight what we're going to be talking about is um, making promise, keeping our promises to other people. And I would say to you, not really. That's not what we're going to be talking about tonight. Because what Jesus is really focusing on is actually starting in verse 34, the very next verse, which says, But I say to you, do not take oaths at all, not by heaven. Uh, because it is the throne of God, and he goes on to say, not by earth, not by your own head, not by Jerusalem. So at this point, Jesus already expects us to know how to keep our promises. Um, and there are plenty of scriptures throughout the, script, throughout the Bible which focus on the fact that God really has, he, it's so important for us to be people of integrity. We should keep our word we, if we make a commitment, we should own it. That's something that has been already talked about at this point. But what Jesus is doing in this verse is the same thing that he's been doing all these other sections. He's taking it a step further and delving a little bit deeper. And what's interesting is that Jesus is not directly quoting one specific verse from the Old Testament. He's actually using language from several different laws in the Old Testament which were related to this practice of swearing oaths. And if at this point you're asking yourself, well, if we're not talking about keeping our promises or keeping our oaths, what are we going to be talking about? Which is why that's right where you need to be. So to help, um, 
what we're going to do is we're going to, I'm going to paint a scenario. I'm going to tell a story and I want you to follow along because what this will do is it'll give you a real example of how this would look like on a day-to-day basis in Jesus's day because this is extremely common and it would happen all the time. So bear with me here. But so let's say I want you to imagine that you are a Jewish farmer and you live outside of Galilee and you grow dates and great uh, dates and olives. Just I want you to picture that. And it's funny as a side note, I, when I was rehearsing this and going through this with with my wife Haley, I was like, "All right, Haley, close your eyes. Imagine that you're a Jewish farmer." She's like, "Justin, I can't. I don't know what a Jewish farmer looks like. <laughs> I don't know what dates are, and I don't know what Galilee looks like." So I was like, "Okay, well, imagine you're in Dayton and you grow corn." and you have a tractor, I don't know. Like, whatever you need to do, do it. But just try and follow. So you're a Jewish farmer. And uh, imagine you have a neighbor. Uh, Let's call him Ezekiel. Uh, Who's also a farmer. He grows dates and olives, too. And uh, bad news, Ezekiel hates your guts. Uh, For some reason, there's bad blood there. Maybe your olives are better, your dates are better, you make more money than him, you're better looking than him. I have no idea, but you guys don't have a good relationship. Uh, And one day, your neighbor Ezekiel loses uh, an ox. He has an ox and it's gone. And he hates your guts, so of course he thinks you took it. So Ezekiel goes to the elders of the community and he makes an an accusation against you and he says, my neighbor stole my ox. I know he stole my ox. I don't like him. I just don't trust the guy. And I saw him do it. And at this point, he may choose to escalate his claims. He might even say something like, I'm telling the truth, elders. I saw him steal my ox. I swear to you, I swear by the name of Yahweh and all that's holy in the temple that I saw my neighbor take my ox. All right, so where are we at? In this silly little story, what has happened? Why does your neighbor feel the need to say something like that? Why couldn't he have just said, I saw him do it? Or why didn't he say something like, I think my neighbor took my ox, so let's investigate and try and figure out what happened here. He doesn't do that. Instead, what he does is he brings the name of God into the situation to elevate his claim, because the logic is God is holy, God is good, God is righteous, therefore my claim is more important. And you need to take me more seriously, because this is serious. Why does he do that? Well, the elders investigate, and it turns out that you didn't take Ezekiel's ox. His cousin Abraham took his ox, and he borrowed it for a driveway project. And he didn't say anything, and it's this big rouse, and the community's in uproar, and there's gossip all around town. And let's just evaluate. Because in public, your neighbor has taken the name of God and has associated it with his own anger. Trey, where are you? You coming? (laughs) Um, Your neighbor has associated it with his own anger, his own frustration, and he has used the name of God to further his own agenda. And this would be what's known as taking the Lord's name in vain. 
and he's defiled the name of Yahweh by swearing this oath. So knowing that this would happen, there were laws that were put into place to prevent this kind of practice, um, which was, like I said, taking the, you know, the holy name of God and leveraging it against other people. So for example, one of the Ten Commandments, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Uh, later, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12, he says, Do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of God, for I am the Lord. You see, in our culture... Swearing is often thought of as it's using foul language. It's saying bad words that aren't professional, that aren't nice. And that's not what Jesus is talking about here. While it is true that we should be different in the way that we speak, and there's lots of verses that talk about as Christians we should look different from the world, that's not what Jesus is getting at here because there's a deeper root issue that I think is way more significant. Swearing in this context is doing what your neighbor did. It's making a claim, swearing an oath to bolster what you're saying. Now, the laws that were put in place in Exodus and Leviticus um, were, were set in stone, but what happened is what always happens with humans is we find a loophole to get around the rules. So what came about is that people would find things that were associated with the name of God but weren't actually the name of God. And when you read these verses, Jesus points out a few examples. Um, he says people were swearing by, by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or by your own head. And actually, later in the Gospel of Matthew, when we get there, in Matthew chapter 23, verses 16 through 22, I'll actually have it on the screen, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and what he says is this. He says, Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold in the temple is bound to that oath. You fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that made the gift sacred? Verse 20, therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by, swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. So if I can't use God's name, then I'll swear by things that are, are associated with God. And that way it'll still accomplish the end goal, which is to make myself look better in front of people, to impress people, and make them feel like I'm telling the truth. They were using these loopholes, but then Jesus shows up on the scene and says, where'd you get your head? Where's heaven? Well, it's God's space. Well, where's earth? Well, that's also God's space. The point is, is that it's all God's. And anything that you could swear by is already under his authority. And Jesus, he just, he wades right into the middle of this whole situation. And he's comfortable. Um, and there's all this controversy around him. But he just like plants himself in the middle with the authority of who he is. And he says, in my kingdom, 
It's about simple, honest, and truthful speech and genuine relationships. And as I was preparing for this sermon, um, I found one of the resources that I was using uh, was Tim Mackey at the Door of Hope Church, which is in Portland, Oregon. And he was actually doing a message on these same verses, and he quoted a book called The Divine Conspiracy, whose author is Dallas Willard. And it's about a 200-page uh, commentary on the Sermon of the Mount. And I think the quote that Tim Mackey pulled during his message was, did such a good job of summarizing what we're going to be talking about. So I'm going to go ahead and put the quote up on the screen, and you can go ahead and uh, read with me. All right. <clears throat> the essence of swearing that Jesus targets here is about invoking something or someone else, especially God, to make your words seem more significant or weighty. The aim is to impress others with your seriousness or piety so that you get what you want. It's a device of manipulation designed to override the judgment or input of others in order to possess them for our purpose. It's manipulation, or as we say in our culture, spin. And Jesus says it's evil. Instead of loving and honoring others with truthfulness, the intent is to get one's way by verbal manipulation of the thoughts and choices of others. Which, I mean, that's a pretty dense paragraph. But I think where we should be at right now is realizing that this isn't about first century Jewish culture or what we can and can't swear by. The root issue is that we present ourselves to others in untruthful ways. And we don't live in ways that are honest, and we will do anything to make it seem like we're better than we actually are. And the big idea for tonight, if you take notes, I would encourage you to write it down. It should be on the screen behind me here in a second. Jesus is calling out how we spin and manipulate our words to elevate our agendas at the cost of relationships. Jesus is calling out how we spin and manipulate our words to elevate our agendas at the cost of relationships. Now, if at this point you're not sure if this passage still applies to you, then right now you could just pull out your phone, get on Instagram or Facebook or whatever social media platform you choose, and just start scrolling. Go ahead and pull out Netflix, put on Hulu, whatever you know, streaming service you want, and put on any reality TV show. There are many that you can take your pick of. And you'll see it right away. And personally, I don't think, I've never really heard this word used before, but Dallas Willard describes, he uses the word spin to describe what we do. And ironically, Haley and I recently have been watching a whole lot of Survivor, which is just a perfect example of how this happens in our culture. And what'll happen is, you know, they'll be on the island and someone will say, you know, I swear on my grandmother's grave that I'm telling you the truth and you can trust me 100%. And then, like, a minute later, they're at tribal council, and they're cutting each other's throats and, like, lying and deceiving and manipulating. Anyways, we're watching Survivor, and a commercial comes on for Mountain Dew uh, Rise. It's a, a new drink that they're promoting. And 
they had LeBron James uh, sponsoring it. And he's holding up, drinking a can of Mountain Dew right before he goes to do his workout. And I was like, there is no world where the king is drinking Mountain Dew right before he does, well, really at all, especially right before workout. I'm like, I bet you that can that he's holding is probably not even filled with Mountain Dew. It's probably either empty or filled with water. So I'm like, what is the thought process of Pepsi-Cola Company when they choose to use someone like LeBron James to advertise their product? Well, it's to sell more Mountain Dew to people who actually drink Mountain Dew who normally look nothing like LeBron James. <laughs> and it makes them feel better about what they're doing because they're like, well, if LeBron James is drinking this before his workout, then I'll just drink it and not work out and maybe I'll get half the results. You know, it's like, they, it, it's a lie. It's a lie. And the influencer on Instagram that you follow is not telling you the complete truth about what their life is like. And that successful entrepreneur that you've met or follow is probably only showing you the best parts of their exciting life. And that friend or fr that friend from college or high school that you still keep track of on social media probably isn't having as much fun as they let on. But I want to take a second and internalize this because the truth is we're all putting on a show for the world to see in some way or another. Whether it's with our words and the way that we speak to people, the things that we choose to buy with our money, the profiles and accounts that we create around ourselves, we're just, we're spinning. And Jesus says that this kind of practice goes directly against the core ethic of the kingdom, which again is to love God and to love people. Because what Jesus wants to see is a group of believers who are having open and honest relationships that lift each other up, where truthfulness and love are at the forefront of all that we say and do. But unfortunately, oftentimes, we hide from each other by creating these barriers and these smoke screens. And this passage isn't about first century Jewish culture. It's about a habit that we all do to some extent or the other. Now, I think at this point, I hope, that at this point we can all raise our hands or admit that, okay, to some degree I recognize that this is something that I either do in my life or I'm aware of. But what makes us different and what makes me different is that not only am I a person, but I'm a disciple of Christ. And I do this in my day-to-day -day life. Let's bring it back to center, because what Jesus is talking about in these passages is the way that we use God's name to make ourselves look better. It's about using religious vocabulary to make ourselves look different than we really are. So, for example, I mean, how many of us have been a part of a conversation with someone who's a Christian, and you're talking about a decision that they have made or have something that they've chosen to do? Uh, oftentimes in that conversation, uh, they'll use language like, you know, I've really been praying about this, and I feel like God has called me to it. Uh, or they might say, you know, I have a real peace about this situation. It's just, it's the right thing to do. Let's think about that. Because it could be, it, it could be that this person has spent a lot of time devoted in intentional prayer and has sought out the counsel 
of wise believers and is checking their own agenda at the door and they're reflecting on the scriptures and they've decided that yes, indeed, this is something that the Lord wants me to do. But if you have been a part of that conversation and if you're a human and if you have, if you're just honest with yourself, a lot of times these conversations could more or less be summed up like, yeah, I don't know, I prayed about it once you know, a week ago for maybe a minute or two, and I've just decided that I'm going to do it, and we're going to see how it goes. And to say that they've been praying about it would not be honest. And saying to someone, God has called me to it, could be a way of putting up sort of a wall between you and that other person and shutting the conversation down. Because saying, you know, God's called me to it is kind of like the Christian trump card. You can't really, like, what do you say to that, you know? If you don't, especially if you don't have a deep relationship with them and you don't, you know, know all the intricacies of their life. Another example of how we do this and we use God to justify decisions is in our relationships with other people. You know, God is telling me to date you or to marry you or to break up with you. Just recently, my wife and I, we know of a couple who were navigating a divorce, who are navigating a divorce. And, you know, we were at their wedding and we witnessed the vows that they made in front of each other. So we felt a responsibility to just touch base with them before they went through with it. And we called them on the phone and we were talking about it with them. And the husband said to us, you know, I've, I've really sought out the wisdom of the elders in our church and I've prayed about it. And I think that this is going to be the best thing for me and her. And as the conversation went on, it became apparent that that was not true, that, that that's not what happened. And, and I know that these are just examples, but I think that they're examples that we can all relate to. And you can either point yourself or put yourself in a situation where you've been a part of that conversation, what, no matter what side you've been on it. The point is, is that I find myself not honoring and loving Jesus, but instead I use my relationship with God to justify decisions that I made by myself that didn't involve God at all. And now what I've done is I've brought the holiness of God into a situation that is not truthful. And it's for my own personal gain, and it's not right. It's sin. And, you know, I don't think that this is a week where we get to come to church and say, I'm good on this one. You know, I haven't sworn an oath recently. Because to me, this is obviously much, much deeper, and it's something that we all need to reflect on and consider as we move forward in our relationships with each other and with God. But God doesn't, Jesus doesn't leave us right there, because I think in these last lines that he gives us, he gives us a great starting point on how to accomplish the goal, which is, again, to be truthful and honest with other people. So in, in the last verse, he says, let your words be yes, yes, or no, no. More than this is from the evil one. So I'm actually, I'm going to invite the band up as I, I close and transition into the bread and cup. If we're honest with ourselves, we spin in several areas of our lives. Because ultimately, deep down, we don't trust that Jesus will actually take care of us if we don't appear a certain way to other people. We are fearing man and others before we fear God. 
And I believe that honest speech is a fruit of a secure relationship with him. Which brings us to what we do every week here at Contrast. We partake in communion. Where we're reminded of the union that we have with Christ. And the security in our relationship with him as we remember his sacrifice on the cross. His atoning sacrifice, which was sufficient payment for all of our sins. So the challenge... Uh, for this upcoming week and beyond. Whenever you find yourself in a conversation with other people or other Christians, I want you in your head to think to yourself and ask, am I being truthful right now? Or am I trying to leverage myself against this person to appear wiser, to appear cooler, to appear more in control of my life than I actually am? And if we're doing that actively, I think that we will be surprised at where these conversations lead us. And truthfully, I think you'll probably find yourself speaking less than you might normally do because if you're being honest and you're keeping your speech simple and you're being, in, being a person with integrity, oftentimes you end up talking a lot less. All that to say, simple, honest speech is important to Jesus and it's something that he expects out of his followers. So this week, I want us to be mindful of what we say and honor the Lord in our speech and intentions. And um, as the band sort of transitions into this next song, they're going to sing two songs. Um, The first one, I just encourage you, no pressure to sing along. Just take your communion and just talk with God. Take a few minutes and just get your heart right and say, you know, Lord, is, is there areas in my my life that I need to repent. Um, and when you're ready, go ahead and partake and then, and then worship and give God the praise and the glory and the honor that he deserves. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.